America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth, where one of our greatest institutions, the Supreme Court of the United States, is under attack. Uh, it appears to have uh, lost the confidence of a big segment of the American people, with uh, voices on the left being raised very prominently, calling for a whole restructuring of the Supreme Court as an institution, particularly enlarging it so instead of nine justices you have perhaps 15. What's the point? Well that's uh, what Mike Lee has written his most recent book about. He's a prolific author. He's also the uh, uh, senior senator uh, from the state of Utah for uh, in the United States Senate and his father as you find out in his new book Saving Nine which is subtitled The Fight Against the Left's Audacious Plan to Pack the Supreme Court and Destroy American Liberty. His father was Solicitor General for the United States, which meant he represented the U.S. government, the administration, uh, and it was the Reagan administration before the Supreme Court. So you were 10 years old, is that right, Senator Lee, when you went to the Supreme Court seeing it in session the first time? Yes, 10 years old. And, you know, the first time I went, it felt like church in another language. You had to hold still, be very quiet. You couldn't understand a lot of what was going on. But in time, I developed a deep appreciation and profound respect for the place. And that's one of the reasons why seeing the court under attack as it now is, I feel compelled to help spread the word and to help protect the court from this type of manipulation that the left is trying to undertake. That's why I wrote Saving Nine. Uh, Saving Nine, when you read it, It'll give you the ability to arm yourself with the arguments you need to defeat the court packing plan of the left. Yeah, the the, the title "Saving Nine refers to a, a common pun that was made when the last president who tried to pack the court, whose name was Franklin D. Roosevelt, uh, he um, uh, basically lost his fight to add justices. And a lot of people thought it was because they had begun giving more more leeway to uh, New Deal programs. And that was described as the switch in time that saved nine. Uh, you're not implying that we need any switch in jurisprudence here on the part of the court to save nine in, in this particular crisis. No, no, not at all. Quite to the contrary. In fact, uh, I, I talk about this, I talk about that switch in time to save nine in chapter five of Saving Nine. And I use that actually as a cautionary tale, as a warning, because the last time court packing was undertaken in 1937, as I explained in chapter five, uh, the court packing plan failed legislatively, but it still left a lasting mark. It still damaged the court. What it did was it threatened, intimidated, and harassed the Supreme Court to the point that uh, Justice Justice Owen Roberts flipped his vote, changed the interpretation of the Commerce Clause, dramatically expanded the authority of Congress and of the federal government, and we've been paying the price ever since then. So that's that's the central message of Saving Nine, is that court packing is bad because it destroys the independence of the federal judiciary. And even when it doesn't work, meaning when it fails legislatively, it still leaves a very ugly mark, and we're still paying the consequences today. That's why I want the American people to be educated and informed 
about the risks of court packing. That's why I wrote this book. After you read this book, you'll never lose another argument again about the federal government, not just about the courts, but about the three branches and how they interact with the states and with the individual. And uh, in in terms of uh, the actual threat of court packing, uh, is are there voices in the administration, anywhere in the administration? I mean, I know he convened that uh, large commission to study Supreme Court reform, but they didn't come up with a positive recommendation to add justices to the court, did they? No, they didn't. And and I talk about this in Chapter 7 of Saving Nine. Uh, the fact that he put together this commission, this was there to take this from uh, an idea that Joe, Joe Biden once called boneheaded and make it mainstream. Um, they, they were trying to legitimize the idea. But by putting together the commission of so-called experts and then having those experts wring their hands and issue a report that culminated in anything other than a complete unmitigated condemnation of court packing, they, in effect, endorsed court packing. And that's what makes this so dangerous. Okay. Do do you favor any of the other suggestions, uh, and uh, do you write about them in Saving Nine? That's the title of the new book by Senator Mike Lee of Utah. Do uh, other suggestions for term limits? Uh, I know we were speaking to Professor Ilya Shapiro of Georgetown University Law School formerly, but we were speaking to him earlier today, and... He thought that, uh, though he believed it would require a constitutional amendment, which makes it very unlikely, that some kind of term limit, an 18-year term, for instance, for Supreme Court justices might actually be beneficial. Are you open at all to that kind of idea? You know, I agree with uh, Ilya Shapiro on most things. I don't think I agree with him on that. Uh, And the reason I don't is that uh, each justice is different. Many justices can continue to contribute meaningfully way into their old age. And I don't see any good reason why we should limit them to 18 years. In any event, I don't believe that the court is broken. That's my biggest grief with all of this, is that those who are calling for court packing start from the premise that the court's broken. It's not. Even when the court issues bad rulings that I hate, I don't call it a broken court. It's just not a bad court that sometimes does good things. It's a good court. It sometimes makes mistakes because it's run by fallible, mortal human beings. We shouldn't go changing it. It's one of the few things in our government that actually functions most of the time the way it should. And uh, when you say that most of the time, you would include the idea of overturning uh, Roe v. Wade if that is the final decision of the court. Well, of course. Look, the Supreme Court has to be able to overturn prior bad precedent. There have been plenty of bad prior decisions by the Supreme Court. I mean, just look at Plessy versus Ferguson that invented the, uh, the demonic doctrine of separate but equal. Never was separate and equal. It was always designed to be unequal. That's why it was correct when the Supreme Court, uh, many decades later, overturned Plessy versus Ferguson and Brown versus Board of Education. Roe versus Wade is one of those decisions that was wrong when it was decided. It was egregiously wrong, and it's time for it to be overturned. What do you say to the fact that, uh, according to most of the polling, support for Roe v. Wade has gone up in the last couple of weeks since the leak? I I don't take any heed to it at all, because, first of all, those polling questions are irrelevant. 
to the question of constitutionality. People may agree with the outcome of Roe versus Wade as a matter of policy, but matters of policy in our constitutional system are to be decided by lawmakers so long as they don't transcend or transgress some constitutional command. This one doesn't. So this is to be made by policymakers, which is elected officials, policymakers typically at the state level, and they are the ones who should get to decide that. Uh, we are talking with Senator Mike Lee of Utah, his uh, book, uh, Saving Nine. Is there a secondary message here other than that you want to leave people with, above all, even more than uh, op- opposition to court packing? Yeah. So the, the, the remainder of the message is we live in a remarkably blessed land. It's blessed. It's been prosperous because we have a system of government that protects the individual and protects society as a whole from the dangers associated with the excessive accumulation of the power in the hands of a few. We have to protect that. To that end, we have checks and balances. We have separation of powers. This book is about protecting the separation of powers and with it, your liberty. So try saving nine and you'll have the tools that you need, not only to understand how great our republic is, but how we can save it. Saving Nine by Senator Mike Lee. It's posted on our website at michaelmedved.com. Godspeed to you, Senator, on your good work. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. would be justified in looking back at us and asking, what were you thinking? Couldn't you hear what the scientists were saying? Couldn't you hear what Mother Nature was screaming at you? The Michael Medved Show. Now, Mother Nature screaming at us in the voice of uh, Al Gore. No, that's not an imitation. That's the real Al Gore. But that was, that must have been from about uh, 20 years ago, uh, maybe 22 years ago during his presidential campaign in 2000. Uh, considering the direction of public opinion from, say, 2000 to today, 22 years later, uh, there there are three issues in which there has been a, a very visible change and consistent change in polling. And they are all issues that the uh, Democrats have uh, tried to use and rally behind talking about uh, issue of uh, gun regulation, where this has been a Democratic concern for years and years and years, issues on uh, abortion and abortion regulation, which is uh, something that uh, the uh, Democrats have uh, been very strong supporters of Roe v. Wade, and all of a sudden support is up for Roe v. Wade now that there is the imminent danger that uh, or the imminent possibility or likelihood that uh, Roe will in fact be overturned by the Supreme Court and uh, then the issue of gay marriage where they just ran a Gallup poll and they had a headline 71 percent of Americans now uh, say they support same-sex marriage and uh, there are about a half a million 
uh, same-sex married couples uh, living in these United States. If you're one of those people who has had a change of heart on any of these issues, uh, give a call uh, because I'd like to hear why. 1-800-955-1776. There's um, a series of conclusions about the takeaways from a big primary night last night. There were seven states that held primary elections last night, and there were interesting messages from all of them. Uh, one of the messages that I think was at least fascinating was um, reported from Washington, D.C., which did not have a primary last night. They don't obviously have elections for governor or for U.S. senator or uh, for a member of Congress. But uh, they do have uh, lots and lots of social life. And there's an interesting note on D.C. social life last night under the heading Only in D.C., Kellyanne Conway, you remember her, she celebrated the publication of her new memoir, Here's the Deal, with a, a book party at Cafe Milano in Georgetown last night. Uh, Georgetown, of course, the uh, a neighborhood, uh, considered a very upscale neighborhood of Washington, D.C. Across town, in the middle of the book party for Kellyanne Conway at 8 p.m., her husband, George Conway, appeared from his study on MSNBC. A few minutes later, he was on CNN's Anderson Cooper 360. In other words, he was doing a TV and not attending his wife's book party. In both appearances, he offered his views on the, quote, criminal conspiracy on the part of former President Donald Trump, his campaign and administration officials, presumably including Mrs. Conway, uh, to overturn the 2020 election. Uh, Politico says we are reliably informed that George booked the appearances as counter-programming to Kellyanne's book party. Uh, regular patrons of Milano will recall that above the bar in the center of the restaurant are two large TV screens that are usually tuned to cable news. Apparently, they were not functioning last night uh, to disrupt the book party. I, again, now that uh, Americans seem to be done with um, the media focus on Johnny and Amber, Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, is there a future here for the uh, battling Conways? Uh, who knows? Okay. About the uh, midterm last night, and of course what everybody asks is because we have a president who according to, uh, we were speaking with uh, uh, Jonathan Allen uh, of NBC yesterday who has just written that uh, Trump is on the verge of announcing his candidacy and will probably announce his candidacy for president in 2024 before the midterm elections of 2022. And apparently the strategy that that would follow would be to discourage uh, any other candidates from uh, going too far in that direction, getting a head start on them, shutting the door on them by demonstrating that he had something like majority support in the party. And uh, 
it, it certainly would uh, enable him to go ahead of uh, Ron DeSantis because the governor of Florida, he simply cannot announce his candidate for presidency or even hint too much in that direction while he's running for re-election. And yes, he's on the ballot for re-election. He's very heavily favored, and I think he will surely win in the state of Florida. But uh, Politico reports that last night, uh, five of the 35 House Republicans who voted to establish the January 6th Commission which begins its televised hearings uh, tomorrow night. The uh, 35 Republicans who voted to establish January 6th Commission, five of them faced primaries on Tuesday. Uh, Trump vowed to exact revenge on all of them. So how did they fare? In Iowa, Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks ran uncontested. She had the closest race in the country. Literally, it was decided by a, a dozen votes. Uh, she is heavily favored to win re-election this time, and no one seemed to count it against her that she voted to establish January 6th commission. In South Dakota, they only have one representative, so it's a statewide at-large district. Uh, uh, jo Dusty Johnson uh, won with almost 60% of the vote, so he won easily. In New Jersey, Representative Chris Smith won with 58% of the vote. In uh, Mississippi, a 50% threshold state, uh, Representative Michael Guest was forced into a runoff in the primary against a MAGA opponent who attacked his vote for the commission. But Trump did not endorse in the race. Will he enter the fray before the June 28th runoff? And then there was California. We will get to that and more coming up on The Medved Show. Thank God Talk Radio is there. The Michael Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. That's Medved show. It seems like Gavin Newsom is always running for office of some kind. He was mayor of San Francisco, uh, uh, and then he was lieutenant governor of California, two terms, and uh, he just won in a recall, if you may remember, where uh, our friend Larry Elder was actually running against him, would have been a, a solid Republican alternative for Californians. In any event, uh, this time, uh, Gavin Newsom got about, they have the jungle primary in California. So it means that all the names are on one ballot, and it's possible that uh, uh, with nobody, uh, uh, actually in California, it doesn't matter. You can. I'm quite sure that Gavin Newsom won over 50% of the vote, but no, he's not re-elected governor. He advances to the general election. But uh, his opponent, the state senator, uh, Dolly, uh, actually won about 15% of the vote. So 
he advances to the general election. Uh, Newsom, a number of people said, seemed to be giving a pitch for his own presidential race, which is appalling, which indicates some of the lack of confidence that Democrats have generally in uh, the idea of either President Biden or Vice President um, Harris being the nominee. In his um, victory statement, uh, advancing to the primary, from the primary to the general election last night, Governor Newsom said, across the country, Republicans are attacking our fundamental rights as Americans, destroying democracy, stripping a woman of the right to choose, and standling idly by as gun violence claims too many lives. California is the antidote to their cynicism. We are leading with compassion, common sense, and science, treasuring diversity, defending democracy, and protecting our planet. Well, that's some pretty good alliteration. I mean, you know, you have D and D and then P and P, treasuring diversity, defending democracy, and protecting our planet. Here's to continuing that fight. But even at that time, the great showing for Lanhe Chen in uh, running for uh, state controller in California gives uh, all kinds of uh, reasons for uh, Republicans to participate in the general election, even uh, without uh, much chance of pulling the upset of the century uh, in the governor's race. Um, Political also writes that over the weekend, DeSantis topped Trump. Where? It's uh, in the annual Western Conservative Summit straw poll, with 71% of participants wanting the Florida governor to run for president in 2024, compared to 67% for Trump. Okay, that's not a huge victory. The next closest was 28% for Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. DeSantis also won the straw poll in 2021. Politico notes that a straw poll comes on the heels of DeSantis also running neck and neck with Trump in a new University of Nevada uh, Reno survey asking voters in the state to rate potential 2024 candidates. DeSantis received the highest favorability score of any Republican with all voters of 48% compared to Trump's 42%. But he was bested by Trump uh, slightly, 73 to 69, when just Republicans were counted. DeSantis has drawn attention as a possible challenger to Trump in part as a result of his very public stance of uh, opposing pandemic-related restrictions which he framed as an effort to keep the state's economy running. And uh, by the way, DeSantis has the same opportunity, in a sense, that Gavin Newsom does. Gavin Newsom is going to be on the ballot in November. And uh, that means that if he wins a gigantic victory, uh, that, of course, will advance his campaign for two years later. And uh, and that's also true for Ron DeSantis. He has uh, DeSantis has much stronger opposition with Charlie Crist, a former governor, 
who used to be a Republican, and then he switched over to be an independent, then he switched over to be a Democrat. He's a Democrat now, and uh, uh, DeSantis is almost a sure victor, and that would energize his campaign. There, uh, there is one note that uh, when you take a look at the the takeaways that are listed by Politico from the big primary night, there uh, is one uh, notable notable uh, case that uh, happened was that in South Dakota, Representative Dusty Johnson drubbed his hardline challenger. Taffy Howard. He was one of those people who believed the election was stolen. Uh, Representative Dusty Johnson did not. He accepted it. And in Jersey, where Trump once sought to encourage a primary challenge to Representative Chris Smith, the uh, veteran incumbent beat back a challenge from Mike Crispy, a Republican podcast host backed by Roger Stone. One inspired headline in this race between uh, Crispy and Smith it came from the uh, state on Tuesday night. It read in part, Crispy Creamed by Smith. But um bump uh, In uh, was little better for Trump, writes Politico, beyond the House Five. In South Dakota, Senator John Thune, who had infuriated Trump when he said uh, his effort to overturn the 2020 election would go down like a shot dog, he uh, thrashed uh, the also-rans who challenged him. Uh, John Thune, one of the most popular uh, politicians in South Dakota. And the same is true of uh, Governor Kristi Noem, who helped her own aspirations for president or vice president by winning the primary against a number of outspoken uh, challengers who didn't come close at all. There's a... Um, uh, one question about the economy, which has been upstaged recently, and it will be upstaged again, uh, Democrats certainly hope, by the hearings they're scheduling tomorrow night. They're going to be nationally televised live, and uh, then they go into hiatus. It's not going to be one night, then another, then another. It goes Thursday night, and then I believe they don't resume again until Monday night of next week. But uh, here is what uh, the senator from Michigan, Debbie Stabenow, was conducting a hearing on Capitol Hill and celebrating the answer to high gas prices. This is <laughs> extraordinary. Listen to clip 12. I do have to say just on the issue of uh, uh, gas prices after waiting for a long time uh, to have enough chips in this country to finally get my electric vehicle. I got it uh, and drove it from Michigan to here uh, this last weekend and went by every single gas station and didn't matter how high it was. And so I'm looking forward to the opportunity for us to move to vehicles that aren't going to be dependent on the um, whims of the oil companies and the uh, international markets. Yeah, but it's not just dependent on the whims of oil companies. Uh, you're getting that vehicle is dependent on people making a tremendous amount of money. The average price for a fully electric car is like $50,000. And uh, there aren't a lot of electric used cars available for people. 
And it seems to me that if a Republican had said what Debbie Stabenow of Michigan said, uh, basically ignoring the fact that electric cars are for people who are, well, getting a lot of chips, as he says. I mean, really, this is supposed to be the party of the uh, downtrodden, ordinary people. We'll be right back on The Medved Show. And of all the headlines uh, that are heartbreaking, disturbing, alarming about uh, shooting and death and destruction and small children whose lives are taken away or ruined, uh, there is this from, uh, from Orange County, Florida, near Orlando. And... Uh, the reports from the Washington Post, Marie Ayala was spending time with her family in their Orlando home. It's actually a rented room that they were sharing. When uh, she heard a loud pop, it was a gunshot, investigators said. The 28-year-old mother of uh, three soon found herself doing chest compressions to try to save her dying husband. Their five-year-old son later identified the shooter. According to court records, the shooter was his two-year-old brother. Ayala has been charged with manslaughter by culpable negligence and possession of a firearm by a felon, authorities announced Monday. Investigators with the Orange County Sheriff's Office allege that Ayala negligently created a situation in which her toddler could get his hands on a gun and accidentally kill his father, 26-year-old Reggie Mabry. Ayala faces up to 15 years in prison if convicted of manslaughter in the May 26th shooting. The uh, sheriff of Orange County, Florida, John Mina, said that now these young children have effectively lost both of their parents. The father is dead, their mother is in jail, and a young child has to live his life knowing that he shot his father. He probably won't remember it. He's two years old. It's just extraordinary. The sheriff uh, used similar language at a news conference this week to describe Mabry's death. These tragedies are 100% preventable, he said, uh, saying that uh, Florida law requires gun owners to secure their firearms in locked containers with trigger locks if children under 16 can access them let alone children under three. Neither Ayala nor her husband should have had a gun. Both were barred from possessing, possessing firearms uh, since they were on probation. The uh, affidavit uh, for Ayala's arrest uh, produces, provides a, a narrative of what investigators believe led to the death on, uh, at the very end of last month. Around noon that day, deputies responded to a 911 call about a shooting at the house of east of Orlando. And uh, when they arrived, the cul-de-sac where Mabry and his family rented a room, deputies found Ayala performing CPR on her husband. Uh, Mabry shouldn't have had a gun either, the sheriff's office said. 
Even though the gun belonged to Mabry, Ayala told investigators, according to the affidavit, though she said she knew about it, she also acknowledged that since she was on probation after being convicted of felony theft in 2016, she was prohibited from having a firearm. Mabry shouldn't have had one either, the sheriff's office said. Both parents were on probation for child neglect and drug possession, something Ayala told investigators after the shooting. In any event, it's a terrible, terrible story. It's just awful. But what it indicates is if they are on probation for child neglect and for drug possession and for felony theft, and uh, they are, are remaining with responsibility for two little kids. I don't, I don't know how old the third kid is, but one kid who's five and one kid who's two. Uh, shouldn't we, if anything be able to prevent people in this sort of situation from the access to firearms. And this is now not keeping them away from, and apparently what happened to the father when he was shot in the back, he had left the loaded gun, why, I don't know, but on the bed, and his children were playing with it, and he was watching, or he was playing a video game when his two-year-old toddled in. And really, when you're two years old, you're a toddler. You're not expected to handle a firearm. And uh, this is why some of the some of the talk about uh, reforms in various states, they're doing this in New York State. One of the things that uh, Governor Kathy Hochul has pushed has been requiring uh, lawful storage of uh, guns, particularly in homes with small children, to protect them and to protect all of us from this kind of debilitating tragedy. And speaking of debilitating, I, uh, I enjoy Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana, Republican. He, uh, he's witty, he's folksy, and sometimes he has a very welcome sense of humor. I think this is an attempt at humor. You can tell me whether it works or not. He's talking about, uh, in Louisiana, despite it being a big petroleum state, uh, how it deals with the rising price of gas. This is clip 16. President Biden continues to campaign for more economic chaos. Meanwhile, I don't know about where you live, Jesse, but uh, in, in my state, the price of gas is so high that it would be cheaper to buy cocaine and just <laughs> run everywhere. Uh, okay. Um, I'm not sure that cocaine is the right solution for the high price of gas. I'm also not sure that a movie that is about war versus pacifism uh, gay romance and ultimately a uh, religious conversion is either a, uh, a solution for some of the woes that we are all experiencing right now. Listen. Now it's time for Medved's Entertainment Minute. 
Siegfried Sassoon, a British war hero in World War One, earned international fame for his poetry describing the horrors of that conflict. And now an ambitious new movie aims to describe his lifelong quest for salvation. It's called Benediction. Now playing in theaters. Friends may come, friends may go. Enemies are always faithful. Life goes slowly on. Trying to understand the enigma of other people. And the enigma of this handsome, lavish, and very well-acted film is that it simply tries to do too much. Focusing on Sassoon's wartime pacifism, his gay romantic adventures with often unworthy partners, and a heartfelt conversion to Catholicism late in life. Each of these components, covering more than 50 years, is impressive in its own right, but they often fail to come together in any coherent way. Rated PG-13 for graphic references to gay sexuality, two and a half stars for the intriguing but incoherent benediction. And incoherent is the right word. And the result of the film is that Siegfried Sassoon, who is a very gifted poet and was a fascinating figure for years, he died in 1965, the actual guy is far more interesting than the version on screen. And that's kind of a shame. Considering uh, versions on screen, there is this. It's a very hard headline to read. The headline from Homeland Security says, uh, Praise for Uvalde Shooter and Call for Copycats is Growing Online. That's what the uh, U.S. Department of Homeland Security bulletin says released um, for tomorrow. Officials sounded the alarm over violent extremist content and misinformation following the shooting in Uvalde, Texas. We'll talk about it. And there are reports that um, President Biden is following a new political strategy to pick fights with Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. Okay, are, are those going to turn out to be good politics? And uh, uh, Ibram uh, X. Kendi has uh, lamented the fact in The Atlantic that he arrived one day to pick up his one-year-old daughter, Imani, from a daycare, only to find her playing with a blue-eyed white doll. Over the course, he... Uh, over the course of a four-day span, he and his wife, Sadika, referred to as his partner suffer increasing protestations from their daughter to leave the white doll behind that resulted in an all-out tantrum on day four. Okay, this is a first-world problem, but we will cover it. And failed drug policy, voters in Oregon passed a legalization bill, and now officials in the state, including some liberals, are saying this was a big disaster. Look at the overdoses. Look at the deaths in this greatest nation on God's green.